1: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11 o'clock. We've got you now until 12, and we have a great show ahead of us. We've got quite a few guests. We've got four guests coming into the show today. And in the studio with me is lovely Dr. Lauren. Good morning.
2: Good morning. There and you is it? Good. It's a huge show again. We're, well, I think we're going to end up with more guests for the actual hour, and we'll have to give them three Compress seconds. Them somehow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Say your signs in three seconds and out the door.
1: Kick them out. Yeah. You yeah. reckon? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well. I mean, this is what happens when big stuff comes up during the week. Yeah, And great. And, uh, you know, I get sent these great emails from Triple R which say, would you like? And yeah. I have a lot of trouble saying no.
2: Oh, it's exciting. Which
1: is a problem. So I have the same problem with grapes.
2: What? Triple R emails you grapes? Yeah, no, no. <laughs> I,
1: I have a grape problem at the moment.
3: Is, is this <laughs> a grape juice problem yeah. or a grape problem? <laughs>
1: no, no, it's a grape problem. fermented
2: I, grape juice problem? It's, it's
1: a peak season and, and geez, anyway. <laughs> um, my wife can tell stories. Dr. Ray, Good morning. Good morning.
3: I'm well. <laughs> and apparently you must be regular. Yeah, uh, hey, I'm on the
1: show every week. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have some signs coming your way though folks. It is time for news. Dr. Lauren, you have uh, more than one piece today. I, I, so I let's, let's do one at a time. Then we'll let, one we get, at a let time. Ray have a turn. Oh, I suppose. What do so. you got? <laughs>
2: Like well, yeah. I couldn't choose this week. There was a lot of interesting stuff going on, and one that really grabbed me was um the astronaut Scott Kelly from NASA has come back from the International Space Station, yeah. having been up there for 340 days. It All is amazing is that they the can
1: muscle deterioration.
2: Exactly. So that yeah. was why I got really intrigued by it because they are doing this really um interesting twin study because Scott Kelly is actually an identical twin, and his identical twin Mark is also a NASA astronaut. Mm. who has now retired and is on the ground, obviously. And so, what they've actually done is uh, designed 10 individual studies comparing uh, what Scott and Mark have experienced over the last 340 days. And it's very cool stuff. So, um we know, for, for instance, that astronauts get taller when they're in space because mm-hmm. the gravity obviously isn't compressing their spine. Uh, and that did happen. So, Scott ended up five centimetres taller when he landed back down on Earth.
3: There's hope for you. Exactly. It, Dr.
2: So, like, all I need to do is go to Thanks for
3: yeah. I'm <laughs> just thinking between the two twins, no, mate, I'm taller now. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm the taller <laughs> twin.
1: <Yeah>.
2: Unfortunately, <laughs> it only lasted for a few hours, though, no, so you only oh, got no. that for yeah. a yeah. You,
1: you can't stand <laughs> up. But he's yeah, still, but if yeah. you know, stretch him <laughs> out on the ground... Yeah.
2: Yeah. But it is fascinating. So obviously they're looking at things like radiation because um, obviously Scott was mm-hmm. exposed to a lot of radiation up there. Um, they're looking at the impact of ageing of that radiation. So they can look at the telomeres, which obviously Elizabeth Blackburn here in Australia um, was responsible for a lot of the work on that. But they're looking at measuring the telomeres of Scott, comparing them to Mark to compare the difference between the ageing in that last year.
1: So is there is, uh, an expectation that the telomeres will... Because I know they shorten as yeah. you get... Older, but he he will be a different age.
3: There's
2: a hypothesis that, yeah, they, they might be. And it's I've such a it. short time. I mean, it's 340 days. He's not that long. Mm. But um, they, they reckon that they may see something. Right. So you they've... Could- haven't obviously this is all at the moment hypotheses they haven't done any of the data analysis but they're looking at these sorts of things and you know comparing heart sizes for example because your heart works less when you're in space is that right and so yeah. they think that his heart's probably going to now be a bit smaller than his twin that was on earth the whole mm-hmm. time
3: gee in, you know in terms of the study it's not just twins but it's an amazing control because they both trained to be astronauts. Mm. They probably had similar physical fitness mm-hmm. throughout their yep. lives. So it's a really fantastic control. Yep. Where I'm sure they tested the wazoo out of both of them just before they went up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but but what what, a, what an amazingly well post experiment.
2: Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And they have some beautiful. Um, so there's uh, so Scott Kelly's been on Twitter the whole time. So if anyone's interested, you can look at some of his mm. amazing photos as well. But he has um all these stories of you know him doing medical tests on himself. So he gives himself flu vaccinations up there and testing the pressure in his eye and he really very committed to this study so yeah it's going to be very exciting so the the results for these all these 10 different individual studies should come out over the next you know year or so hopefully
1: yeah i mean beyond anything else i mean just seeing how long a person can maintain their health and and longevity um in in that environment Mm -hmm. i mean because that is you know getting towards the scale of time to get to mars that's
2: it um
1: and of course as we know you get to mars and it's kind of helpful that the gravity on mars is lower than earth so mm. you know the fact that you've had a bit of a, you know mm. your, your body's going to crap you <laughs> in space you know, and, and exposed to a lot more radiation yeah. actually because you're out in deep space yep. um you know being able to do this is you know everyone says go to mars go to mars go to mars you know, but mm-hmm. actually you know biologically we're not really designed to do that sort of stuff it, so it. it's going to be tricky there to mm. make that work yeah yeah, yeah. Mm.
2: but you're right because i mean it is obviously it's a tiny sample size there's only one pair of twins mm. but that's what they're saying you know this will be essential for, for knowing how long we can actually send people into space so
1: yeah i'm still all for the reality tv show where you just send them one, one <laughs> you know. But but the reality is i think we will have to get to the point where we stop thinking about going to mars and bringing people mm. back mm. and this is you know last year anyone who saw buzz aldrin's presentation at the melbourne town hall realized that that wasn't the version he was promoting it Mm. was the idea that we set up a colony on Mm. mars and continually supply it Mm. and people go and they live there Mm -hmm. and that's it Mm -hmm. and you know maybe in 10 20 years you bring them back but it's not the ideal that they go there walk around take some pictures of their footprints and come back back, it's it's, no they actually establish a colony there Mm. so interesting stuff yeah
3: dr ray what do you got so Mm -hmm. something a bit more down to earth um i want (laughs) to talk about raccoons for a moment and so a raccoon Dr. Shane, is a, a North American varmint or rodent. Uh, it's slightly bigger than a bushy-tailed, mountain bushy-tailed possum, so, mm-hmm. or, or as, as Dr. Jen studied them for her thesis, the bowbuck. Okay. Uh, so it's slightly bigger than a possum, way more aggressive. If, you know, people come into contact with raccoons by... Um, throwing things in a large rubbish bin or a dumpster and having to fight the raccoon to open the door. I mean, they're really quite scary at night when you're not expecting.
1: But, um, it sounds like you're talking about your childhood. Personal experience there. Yeah.
3: The, the thing about raccoons is in, in British Columbia, in, in this particular island in the Gulf where this study was from the University of British Columbia, and in actually a number of places, there's no more natural predators for raccoons in many areas. And there's this fantastic study where in this island where there are no more national predators, which would be wolves and cougars are all gone from Mm. this particular island. The raccoons forage the the beach shores continuously without any fear of predators and what you see is a drop off in populations. Mm. So what this study did was instead of reintroducing a predator which we've already seen has had amazing effects on ecosystems where, for example, mm. when they brought wolves back into Yellowstone, yeah. the yeah. deer stopped grazing openly, they stopped stripping the fields down, that actually created less runoff, the river stopped eroding just by bringing an yeah. apex predator back. because of the back.
1: wolf, yeah. 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 yeah.
3: So amazing. here they went, well, w- let's not bring wolves back. We're just going to put some loudspeakers in with wolf noise. <laughs> And so for a okay. month, they put wolf speaking. They blasted predator calls for <laughs> wolves and and cougars for some of the beaches, and some left as controls. Not only did the raccoons stop foraging relentlessly and you know without any fear, the uh, the crab species and the fish species that it was a predator to for came back. Hmm. The crab species own prey, which were snails and things that it helped control, started to decline. And so you saw this whole ecosystem come back into balance from merely the fear of the predator, not the actual predator.
2: It is an interesting one, though, because you wonder how long it would take them yeah. to learn that. You to know, really hang on a second, that, that radio is actually not yeah. going to hurt me. <laughs> so, yeah, it's interesting.
1: Yeah, Especially, raccoons are pretty destructive, as I understand it, yeah. too. Oh, yeah. so, so they'd have to be fairly robust. Your, your industrial-strength radio, Oh, strength, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they don't rip it apart.
3: Well, <laughs> and, and so there's been a lot of debate about whether or not fear could drive this in an animal, or it the actual presence mm. Of, mm. Of, of a, mm. of a, of a, a, a predator. Or an apex predator. And so this is kind of the first nice study that's actually out of control to say, hey, mm. you can't actually just drive the fear from their calls. But Dr. Lauren is right, at some point the raccoons are going to figure it out because mm. they pick up learned behaviors pretty quickly.
2: Mm. But at least we're trying different things now. Like, I mean yeah. the, the example which jumps to mind obviously is cane toads, you know. Like we we have done it so many times in the past where we've brought in another predator and just completely ruined the ecosystem. So at yeah. least
3: yeah. Well, yeah. there, is, there is one audio thing Australia is doing for king toads, but mm. it's a bit depressing. They actually have audio monitoring stages stage, stations in the bush that they check just to p- track the progression of cane toads mm. as they spread or okay. something. So that's a bit, sad. It's a bit yeah, depressing, yeah. but that's it. Because yeah. uh, there isn't a, a, a predator for cane toads.
1: I mean, I do, I do love this version, though, because we're not talking about the introduction of a potentially destructive species that was never there. Mm. We're talking about the introduc- reintroduction mm. of a species that has been wiped out. Yeah. Mm. And so, as you say, the, the example of the wolf in Yellowstone, I just think yeah. it's just the. I mean... The idea of that nation having been to that national park, the idea of that national park without the wolf just doesn't seem right. Mm-hmm. it's sort of like this is such an integrated part of what what that place is, yeah, yeah. and bringing it back in, and, and then looking at those downstream effects, literally with the streams, streams. and everything, mm, uh, yeah. you know, and seeing such a profound impact of an apex predator teaches us that, you know, well, hang on, you know, don't go, don't, don't go killing sharks, don't go mm. doing all this other stuff yeah. because the impact will be pretty high. Mm.
3: Mm. Yeah, ecosystems—they're related.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're like, yeah, yeah. It's a t-shirt slogan. The, the apex predator is in the food chain. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it just happens to be at the top. So, sort of like. Don't don't take it out. <laughs> now, Dr. Lauren, you want another go?
2: I do want another go because this one um, came to my attention through Twitter, actually, and that was through the hashtags CreatorGate and Hand of God. So if any of you are on Twitter, you will know what I'm talking about already.
3: I'm, I'm, I'm interested to hear that you. Follow,
2: hand of God. <laughs> well, you know, it is always my first search in the morning, but, um,
3: <laughs> It sounds like a PlayStation game, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, you yeah. Know, some space operatic thing. Yeah, um, I think so.
2: Well, even more scaringly, it actually has come about from a scientific paper. Um, now this was a paper that was published by a group from Wuhan in China. Completely bookstering that town's name. Uh, but it was published in Plus One in January. And why it has brought up so much controversy is that the conclusion of the study is that the human hand is evidence of proper design by the creator.
3: Oh,
1: a creator
2: with a capital C. So yeah. we are talking obviously religious connotations here. This went crazy. So there was a lot of backlash from the scientific community, and I have read the paper, and it is repeated throughout that that you know that it is evidence that there is a, a creator which has designed the human hand. Now this obviously brought up a lot of issues. The journal has now retracted the paper. So it was published in That's January. That's big of them. Yeah, mm. but it's a really scary thought and it really does bring up this idea. So the, the authors have come out and said, look, apologies, we're, we're Chinese, it's not our first language. We didn't realise the connotations, which <laughs> oh, is slightly
1: questionable. Uh, I, I'm gonna, sorry folks, I don't usually do this on there, but that's bullshit. <laughs> Uh, yes. no, there, there's all sorts of language issues that can come in due to the English being a second yep, yep. language, but referring to things as being the result of the creator, the creator isn't one it, of it's them. It's
2: a pretty strong thing. Yeah. Yeah. But, and, and, the, and the thing is, I mean, even if it was the case that it was an English issue, this should have been picked up by the peer reviewers. Yeah. It should have been picked up by the editor. This is the reason that we have the peer review process and it's failed miserably here. Mm.
3: So is there anything in that Plus One is an open access journal and is a, a newer form? I mean, although Plus One is very established, it is a, it has a strong scientific reputation. It is a, a newer mm. model for how the journals operate.
2: Yeah. So, so what Plus One say that they do is that they, they care about scientific integrity and techniques, but they're not so interested in, you know, the impact of, of science. So this is so often they have got a little bit of flack in the past for this because they're interested in just getting science out, but it doesn't necessarily have to be completely novel. But this again is another yeah. issue. I mean, this is something. But that's,
1: I mean, that that kind of statement, I'm actually very positive on because mm. there are, there are many things that, frankly, should be published which are null results yeah, or negative course. results that mm. don't end up getting out into the scientific community because yeah. they're not the flashy stuff that your Nature and other journals, you know, your magazine journals, mm. frankly, mm. Um, will will print. Yep. So if there, there are journals that are starting to say, well, you know, look, someone worked for three years proving that this wasn't going to work. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's valuable scientific information. Yeah. And it'd be good to see that in some journals. And
2: it's, it's hugely valuable. But this is different. Mm-hmm.
1: This is mm-hmm. incompetence. Yeah. This is, this is what you would expect from a tabloid magazine, yeah. um, not a scientific journal. And, and it brings, it brings all of science down when something like this happens. Yeah. It, it's, it's damaging.
2: And you know, the, I mean, these statements, they weren't hidden in the middle yeah. of the paper. This was in the abstract. You know, this is oh, the, <laughs> yeah, you know, this is that their their main conclusion is that 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 the study has shown that there's a, a, a creator.
1: Yeah, well, it's easily corrected. I mean, just you know. Remove that bit, put mm. a, put a reference to Darwin somewhere.
3: Just change, change
1: you know, evidence of evolution. <laughs> yeah, you know, and then bang, yeah. you know, it's a couple of word changeover and it uh, yeah. should have been done. Well, let's hope yeah. we don't see that sort of stuff again and hopefully that journal, uh, in, in a way it's good for these things to become very public and mm-hmm. social media mm-hmm. has been great at doing that <laughs> because you want these things to be exposed for the nonsense that they are. Yep. And for science to stand up and other scientists say, no, we just don't accept this kind of behavior from a apparently peer-reviewed professional journal. Yep,
2: that's it. exactly. Every,
1: every, every organization makes mistakes, but they have to, um, they yep. have to cop it. Acknowledge so, it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Oh, somber note, Dr. Lauren. I think we should <laughs> play some music and, you know, just, uh, you know, get back mm. to reality. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, Yes. Uh, hi, George Bell, if you're listening. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my. Go. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a break for some music and uh, we'll be back in a moment, folks. We have a guest coming in uh, talking about the effects of poor diet on mental health and um, she's from Deakin University. So hang in there. You're listening to 3RR. 3 3 In the studio, we have Sarah Dash. She's a PhD student from Deakin University in the Faculty of Health in the IMPACT Strategic Research Centre, and IMPACT, not a verb, it actually stands for Innovation in Mental and Physical Health and Clinical Treatment. Welcome to the studio, Sarah. Thank you. Now, you're working on an area that I have to say I have a personal interest in because... um, you know, I, I'm always thinking, you know, when I eat something, is it going to affect my, my, my mental health mm-hmm. as well as my health? Because yeah. I've had experiences where I've eaten certain things and, and felt anxious or crap afterwards and i'm not sure what my body's doing now you're actually working in that space trying to make this connection that's right first question for you i mean have people not tried to literally do this before this connection between you know mental health and and what you eat
4: yeah well that's the thing um i think people intuitively like you said understand that there does seem to be this relationship between Mm. diet and depression i mean most of us have a story of i ate a terrible meal and i instantly regretted it and Mm. i i paid for it you know i felt anxious or or sad or low. Um, But it took quite a bit of time for the science to actually catch up with sort of that anecdotal or uh, personal evidence. So it's only actually quite recently that we've started to look um, at the relationship between diet and depression in sort of observational or um, longitudinal studies. Mm. So it's just really that the science has been a little bit slow to catch up. Mm.
1: Um, and 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 I mean, what is the link? I mean, why, why are we seeing this link? I mean, I, I can understand why you biologically you feel a bit crap after mm-hmm. you eat, you know, a burger or you know whatever, but why is that affecting your mental state?
4: Well, this is something that uh, is basically my PhD, is what we're really trying to understand. So um, now we have enough evidence to say that there is this association. There does seem to be this relationship between um, people who eat a really healthy diet uh, that seems to be quite protective of your mental health over time. Uh, and the opposite is true as well. So people who are eating a very poor quality diet over time. Uh that seems to be a risk factor for mental health. Um, but what we're really getting into now is um, a trial that we've been working on for the past three years is to really sort of take that to the next level and say, okay, uh, if I actually change my diet, will that improve my mood? So, unfortunately, I can't <laughs> specifically answer your question because the science, that's really yeah. what the trial has been um, seeking to answer.
1: So, so let's talk about that trial. I mean, how do you go about that? Do you grab a hold of the people who are, frankly, depressed beyond belief and... And put them into two groups? Is it, you know, control and non-control group? And well, that's the simple version booze? of it, yeah. Is <laughs> it,
4: <laughs> yeah, um, it's Is it a... ethical to well, feed them a crap diet? <laughs> um, uh, well, no, not necessarily. Um, but we find that people, unfortunately, do that without us uh, oh, okay. intervening yeah, at all. Yeah, fair enough. Yep. So essentially what we did was we recruited a bunch of people that were experiencing a current um, depressive episode. And we randomized them into two groups. So one of those was a control group, uh, and they had what we call a, a befriending condition. So it's sort of just a neutral social support condition. And that's just um, people came into our clinic for the same amount of time uh, and met with somebody just because we see that when people actually come into a research center, uh, they tend to improve anyway. So it was just to mm. sort of level the playing field. Yeah. Um, and then we had our intervention group who actually um, made and sustained dietary change over the course of three months. So they were put on... On what we call a modified Mediterranean diet over the course of three months um, with a dietitian. So, what, what
1: was modified about it? Was it less alcohol? Uh,
4: well, <laughs> no. There was a little. There was room for a little bit of wine in there, yep. thankfully. Um, but it was just that there was a little bit more red meat than in okay, a traditional. Yeah. Uh, yep. Mediterranean diet um just because we have some pretty good evidence that a bit of red meat especially zinc and iron Mm -hmm. are quite um, good for your mental health as well Mm. did you get any feedback from the people about why they
2: weren't having that healthy diet to start with like you know
4: was it the reasons that they could pinpoint well I think it's two things. Um, firstly, we find I've actually just been reading uh, the results of the Nutrition Survey, National Nutri- Nutrition Survey, um, and as it turns out, none of us are actually eating that well mm-hmm. to begin with, whether um, we're experiencing mental health problems or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but obviously with depression there's a whole bunch of motivational issues um, and you're already dealing with so much. Mm-hmm. Um, there's changes in appetite and things like that as well. So a lot of the symptoms themselves were what might actually change your diet. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of things were habitual, you know. People might not have had um, cooking skills or resources or time. Mm. Um, a lot of those familiar reasons, that a lot of us maybe mm. don't make our best choice. Do, do you
1: find that people who are in the high-risk group for depression, anxiety, and so forth are also in the higher-risk group for poor-quality diet? Is there a correlation there?
4: I would say those two are related. Um, it hasn't been sort of the primary focus of my research, mm. um, but there are sort of common conceptions out there that eating healthy um it costs a whole bunch more money. Um, I mm. actually wrote a paper with one of my colleagues where we actually looked at this. Um, we sort of costed this modified Mediterranean diet that we were prescribing to people, and then we it was very painful. We went through what people were eating and costed every single item mm. for a week. Wow. Uh, and we compared the costs of that, and we found that um, it wasn't actually... Uh, a, a huge problem. It was very affordable for them to be eating some version of this modified Mediterranean mm. diet. Uh, so I think cost is one of those issues, um, but also there's things like time mm. uh, that mm. are maybe a little bit more difficult to well, address. Well, time,
1: time seems to be the issue. I mean, because yeah. I, I'm very surprised to hear that cost is something that people would infer. As being a problem there i mean I bought a kilo of onions today for two dollars mm. i mean mm. you know good quality you know if you buy fresh good quality produce in the yeah. right places mm. um, it's it's cheap you know it is mm. cheap, whereas if you buy packaged. Prefabricated meals. Mm. I think what people don't do is they, they don't really compare the amount of food. Mm-hmm. And I call it food, not the fillers they put in, but food yeah. with food. They compare, oh, that's half a kilo in a frozen packet with yeah. half a kilo that I bought Fred. Well, no. <laughs> yeah, they're not the same thing. They're
4: that's not the same right. Thing. Yep. Yeah.
1: Mm. So for, I mean, from a nutrition point of view, I mean, how do you sort of factor that into your study? Like what people are actually consume like do you you bring that into into the work like how much nutrients are they getting from this diet versus that one
4: right well something that was really beneficial from our trial i think was that the actual intervention was led by a dietitian. that was a really important part of Mm -hmm. the trial itself um and so we uh helped participants we delivered a food hamper at the beginning and end of the trial and that was really filled with all of the goodness that we were going to be encouraging them to eat. So that was um, helpful because it showed them what they could go to the grocery store and actually purchase for themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it gave them a bit of a kickstart. Then they had, you know, a big thing of olive oil that they could be pouring on their salads and things mm-hmm. ready at hand. Um, but you there was certainly like an educational component. Um, so the dietitian would supply them with really easy to make recipes. Mm-hmm. And um, But it sort of highlights the problem, doesn't it? Like maybe we have to go all the way back to the beginning and, and teach people to cook again and... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really demonstrate that difference between um, what you're buying at a gas, a petrol station, or something, mm-hmm. um, compared with you know, getting something at a, at a fresh food market. The two aren't really comparable, are yeah. they? Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah. So in terms of the actual outcomes of the study now, I mean, you you, you finished the the trials. We've finished done.
4: recruiting. Yeah. Finished
1: recruiting. Yeah. So are you starting to see you know this this big question? You know, I, I'm I'm depressed. Can my diet? fix me?
4: Well, um, we're pretty much in the process of writing the manuscript now, so it's, it's a really exciting time. Um, so it's sort of a w- w- watch this space answer, um, but we're really excited about the results and we think that uh, the findings could be really important for um, primary care of depression, mm. is what we're right. hoping.
1: Mm. Course, uh, you both had your hand up.
4: <laughs> <laughs> so I-, I was just
3: thinking about the diet and delivering the hamper. Um, when people are depressed, they're already undergoing a lot of strife and motivational problems how do you know they're following your recommended diet
4: well we had them coming in pretty much weekly and so the dietitian would track you know, they would say, how is this, how is this week going? And we do understand that it's already such a sensitive sort of time in their lives that you wouldn't want to be like, how could you, how could you not eat all your vegetables for the week? <laughs> so it's really, um, goal oriented and, and really driven by participants. So they would say things like, you know, this week I'm going to try and um, eat yogurt every day for breakfast or I'm going to swap out, uh, the rubbish snack that I have in an afternoon for some carrot sticks or something like that. Um, and that's something that would be followed up the week later when they returned. And we also collected a huge amount of data through the whole thing. So food frequency questionnaires, um, seven-day food diaries with everything they ate and drank at the beginning and end of the trial. Uh, so really to track that progress, not only um, in those uh, consults with the dietitian, mm-hmm. but also, you know, on paper with real data. Yeah, don't,
1: don't
4: oh, sorry, I'm jumping in again. Yeah, um, but no, um, I know your research also focuses
2: a bit on the the gut microbiome as well, yeah. And, and that's a fascinating area Isn't because it? we're now starting to learn that that might be related a lot more to our mental health and emotions than we thought. That's right. Yeah. So, h- how do you
4: actually look at that in these people? Well, uh, so that will really be um, the crux of my PhD, essentially. So, we've collected blood work from participants at the beginning and end of the trial as well, um, just to see uh, if there's any changes in in those biomarkers. Mm. So we'll be looking at things that are sort of markers of what we call endotoxemia, which is a leaky gut. Um, So it's sort of a compromised barrier. Um, of that gut lining, and so little mm. molecules that are within the gut can actually escape into the bloodstream, um, and having this happen really continuously sort of keeps your immune system and uh, levels of inflammation elevated, which we know is a risk factor for just about everything. Mm. Um, so what we'll be doing what i 'll be doing is is really looking at some of those biomarkers to say, um, could we actually you know was there a bit of leaky gut there in the first place? Could we actually mitigate some of those effects? Do we see that they were reduced at follow-up? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's certainly something that we're going to be uh, will be really interesting for us mm-hmm. to look at. A it's
1: fascinating stuff. Now, um, just before we let you go, uh, in my experience, PhD students eat. Crap! No, stop. I mean, did you find with yourself and, and your colleagues doing this research? I mean, did it make you hyper aware of what you were consuming each week? I mean, you're really focusing on every item a person puts in their mouth. I mean, did it change your diet, or did um, you just stay on the PhD elite crap diet? Well,
4: I. It's funny. I am both personally and professionally very interested in food, so I've always eaten well. Um, I would say. But if you do become super aware, like I am quite competitive as well, so I would almost be like holding competitions while we were running this trial. I'd be like, okay, how many vegetables can I eat today? Like how can I? So you do, it certainly brings hyper awareness to what you're actually eating. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that I followed the really rubbish PhD student diet to begin with, so I'm maybe not the best one to report, but, uh, yeah. even more vegetables probably.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it's one of those things that I, we, you you know, we hear about all the time, but, mm. but as you say, the science hasn't been there to, to get past the the anecdotal stories that we, you know, I mean, we get... Bombarded with this crap, especially right after Christmas, when everyone's yeah. trying to sell you, you know, um, gym memberships and hide. crap. Mm-hmm. But you know, it, it'd be good to get that really strong link that says, "Hey, this is a person who is, you know, depressed over a protracted period, and we may be able to have an impact on that." So mm-hmm. I hope, Sarah, it does come out that way, and um, we'll look forward to seeing the results yeah, of your work. Yeah, it's going to be
4: really important. Thank you so much.
1: Sarah Dash is a PhD student at Deakin University in the Faculty of Health. Folks, we're going to take a short break for some music, and we'll be back in just a moment with another. The two guests and an old voice you may have heard many many years ago on this show three, two, three, in the studio we have two guests one is dr carolyn lee she's a postdoctoral research fellow and dr erica sloan who is a senior lecturer both of them from the monash institute for pharmaceutical sciences at monash university welcome ladies Hi, thanks. Now, uh, some of you may remember Erica. She used to be part of the show many, many years ago. Do you remember what to do, Erica?
0: Oh, vaguely. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so you might want to come closer to the microphone. You remember that part? <laughs> now, you guys have had a huge amount of press this week because you're working on something extremely exciting which is um, focused around the idea of chronic stress and how it affects people with cancer. So what we might do, uh, Caroline, I'm going to start with you. I want to talk first about this idea of these lymphatic highways. So can you give us a bit of a rundown of how the lymphatic system works first?
5: Right. So the lymph, uh, the lymphatic system really is not um, well appreciated. It's It's this Network of vessels that pretty much reaches every uh, part of your body, and what it its, it's key role is to uh, mop up any leftover fluid that your blood circulation leaves behind, and it also um, carries immune cells around the body mm-hmm. um, to to either promote or resolve inflammation. And so it's this system that that's out there that um, yeah it gets very little attention.
1: Right, so it's it's critical to our survival. Yeah, obviously. definitely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and and what what is it per se? I mean, is it is there you know bits around the body or is is it the whole system like physically what is it
5: uh it's it's a, a network of vessels so okay. just like our blood vessels um it's a network of vessels that um start uh, essentially um from the heart and and stretch out throughout every um part of your body
1: okay now when we're when we're stressed um or chronically stressed what's happening in the
5: lymphatic system yeah so there's this direct link between um our sympathetic nervous system so this is our flight of a uh, fight or flight bite, or fight? um uh, response and so there's this direct link between the nerve fibers from this system and our lymphatic system and okay. so when we're stressed um w- what we what we saw in the study is that you get um a lot more uh lymph flow through these vessels and so the the system really just amps up ready to uh, fight infection for instance if we were to you know get hurt during these stressful periods
1: okay so so even uh, that that was a link i was trying to make so you know i see a a lion and you know i start running which is you know in an evolutionary sense where we have this response but our but our system is is preparing for potential infections at that point as well that seems extraordinary
5: yeah right and so that's something that we really considered um, throughout this project is what was the evolutionary role of the, the stress system being connected so tightly to the lymphatic system mm. and so we, we our analogy is the woolly mammoth, you know, back in the caveman days or a lion for instance, when you are in those very stressful situations it is beneficial for you to have um, the lymphatic system ready primed to fight infection because in those situations you, you th- there's a higher chance of you getting cut or hurt, mm. so it would be mm. uh, beneficial for the immune system to be ready to to help you uh, recover from those those situations
1: yeah erica i might just turn to you for a sec when when we're in those scenarios you know our body pumps adrenaline this is a very short um phase that occurs you know it doesn't doesn't last for long you know you can only the body can only maintain that state for long for a very short period of time is it similar for this lymphatic response i mean is is that also a very short space of time or are we prepped for infection for for days after that occurs. Do we know that?
0: I'm not sure we really know that. We were investigating it very much in the context of cancer and I guess we were also investigating it in the context of chronic stress mm, so when okay. you're in this sort of situation when your adrenaline levels are elevated day after day right, after day right. yeah but it's a good point evolutionarily you want this response you want to deal with the woolly mammoth and then the woolly mammoth wanders off yeah you yeah get on so what do you
1: do <laughs> yeah yeah, Being a caveman? yeah. <laughs> so let's let's talk about the link to cancer now i mean there's been a lot of stuff we've had many guests over the last couple of years in particular uh, talking about the way our body naturally fights cancer cells and, and methodology for trying to amp that up so how does the lymphatic system and, and this this sort of scenario link in with what the body does with regards to cancer cells and what you're working on
5: right so um the lymphatic system aside from um carrying these fluids and and the immune cells around your body what could also happen is you're uh, cancer can hijack the lymphatic system okay. to use it as highways to spread throughout the body. And so what we found was that, uh, with chronic stress, cancer is better equipped to hijack the, the lymphatic system to actually provide more highways for it to spread throughout mm. the body.
1: Okay. Cause we often hear this statement, I mean, that it's spread to someone's lymph nodes, mm, which right. presumably is, you know, the, I guess the, 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 network junctions of the, of, of those highways. Right. And, and I assume once that happens, it goes everywhere.
5: Right. And, and, as you mentioned um spread to the lymph nodes is one of the key prognostic factors in in cancer and so once you once you have spread to the lymph nodes it's assumed that you've got quite uh widespread um of of the cancer
1: yeah yeah now Dr. Oh, I
5: was just going to say with this um the link, it does
2: definitely seem to be from what you're saying that it's a chronic stress yes. links in with it. So how do you actually define chronic stress? like is there a time frame that you have to be stressed for or a particular level of stress?
5: Yeah, so it's always hard, um with stress, it's quite subjective, you know, we could all be placed in the same room and come out of it completely, uh, different in terms of our stress levels. So what we're looking at is really the, the physiological, uh, stress on our body. So this chronic activation of the sympathetic nervous system, which some may have, uh, I guess, uh, more attuned, uh, levels than others. So chronic activation of this fight or flight response, um over prolonged periods. And so I guess in, our studies were in mice, but in, in, Uh, humans it it can vary we're looking at it in terms of or what we like to think of it is uh, stressful life situations so these you know you you, uh, a divorce for instance or a loss of a loved one these chronic periods of stress is is really what we're focusing on
1: so i mean i I hate to sort of point out the obvious here but when you find out you've got cancer Mm. isn't that automatically one of those situations i mean is that are you kind of screwed at that point because you you've fallen into this scenario where you're chronically stressed because you've got cancer and you're then therefore helping the cancer spread. Is that is that right?
0: You raise a really good point that a diagnosis of cancer is going to be super stressful. What is positive about our research is it suggests ways of intervention. Mm. And so rather than questioning that... A diagnosis of cancer is stressful. Rather see it as, and at that time, in addition to just treating the cancer, perhaps we should be treating stress. Mm. To allow us to properly treat the cancer hmm. and to allow us to limit any further dissemination of tumour cells at hmm. that point.
1: So we, we hear that exercise, particularly when you get cancer is really beneficial is, and I've often, you know, been told that that was because exercise is good for your body. Is it potentially because it's reducing stress? We all know that it's a great reliever of stress when you exercise in a, especially an intense way. Is it, is it possible that that's where this link is coming in?
5: Yeah. So that question's been asked quite a lot because with uh, the fight or flight response you get, a release of adrenaline in- into the circulation so does exercise exercise releases adrenaline and so the comparison has been made but i guess with exercise it's this short burst um and so this acute mm. i guess burst of adrenaline is actually beneficial it promotes your immune system it actually fights cancer and it's been shown that um exercise promote uh Uh, promotes uh, recovery from cancer whereas Mm. what we're looking at is this as i mentioned long prolonged periods Mm. where you've got uh eventually immune suppression when you activate the sympathetic nervous system for too long you get immune suppression which then does the opposite and and actually promotes cancer spread Mm. Mm.
1: now uh, there are many medications available for reduction of stress and anxiety Uh, are these ones they're ones available that can be used in a way that get you the good out of the sympathetic nervous system and stopping that spreading without any sort of side effects of the problematic. Is that doable
5: yes definitely so this is uh, another component of the study where we looked at not only how uh, chronic stress promotes cancer but we also looked at ways of inhibiting it or blocking it and so what we found were um, the the use of beta blockers so these are common antihypertensive drugs that can block the effect of adrenaline um, in in our system to then prevent these detrimental effects of stress or chronic stress on cancer spread Mm
1: -hmm. and so this has been uh, using a mouse model so far i mean have there been studies? in people as yet monitoring this because it seems like a a relatively low impact type of intervention i mean there's many interventions around at the moment for cancer patients which i would regard as very high impact this seems to be a low impact one that might get a lot of people across the line yeah
0: Yeah, so as part of the study we got together with a group from milan that had a cohort of nearly a thousand women who were breast cancer patients Mm -hmm. and because so many people as you point out are being treated for hypertension um, a number of them were taking beta blockers and we actually found evidence in that group of women that the people taking beta blockers showed less evidence of cells spreading to the lymphatics so that's led us to go on now and we're working with some doctors at peter mac to actually prospectively evaluate that so Mm. we now have an ongoing Clinical study where we're inviting women when they're diagnosed with breast cancer to take part, and if they agree, they'll be randomly assigned to either take a beta blocker or a placebo for a period. And in that study, it's, it's a relatively short study, we're just looking for changes in genes being turned on or off that might indicate that the cancer is going to spread a little less. Mm. But then down the track, if we see a positive signal there, the next step will be to go into a much larger cohort of patients and to follow them out for a long time and see where whether we really do restrict the spread of cancer if we treat them with beta blockers Mm. and coming
1: back just briefly to the to the mice i mean how big an effect is this having on them i mean i know you know you can stain these cells and you can watch them and make sure they don't move around and and so forth but are you seeing a health impact there are you actually seeing that by helping the the system you know or, or preventing the system from spreading in this way that it's it is actually having a, a, a big effect on, on the health of those mice?
5: Right. So, we, we, yeah, we, we did the whole gamut of things. So we looked at just the, the cells spreading themselves mm. and, and looking at how the cells moved in the lymphatic system. But we also followed them out in, and to look at, um, I guess, uh, typical cancer outcomes that you would look at in cancer patients. So spread of cancer to the lung, uh, which is something very uh, often um, observed, and then uh, to the lymph nodes, as you mentioned earlier. And so what we saw with uh, chronic stress was that there was six times more cancer to spread um, to the to the lung and to the lymph nodes in mice that were stressed versus those that weren't stressed
1: okay so quite significant. well um look great work i'm glad to thank see you. you getting so much press on this during the week and it was a pleasure having you both in here i'm going to stage to you while they say that all researchers working in cancer hurry up <laughs> 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 we're <laughs> there's trying <laughs> a, there's a lot of people out there who, who need this um to be a good news story as soon as possible so um keep up the good work and um we will no doubt speak about this again depending on how the, the results come out
5: great thanks for
1: having me thank you Dr. Caroline Lee and Dr. Erica Sloan are both from the Monash Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences at Monash University. You're listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 July. We're going to take a break, folks, and we'll be back with one more guest before the end of the hour. 3 In the studio now, we have our, our final guest for today. Marilyn Anderson is a professor of biochemistry at the La Trobe Institute for Molecular Science at La Trobe University. Marilyn, welcome to the studio. Thank you. Now, you're working in this uh, very interesting area where you look at uh, some of the natural sort of defence molecules in plants and you're trying to bring that across to, you know, helping people. First of all, let's talk about plants. Um, defence against what? What are they using and what against?
6: Well, this started off when I was very interested in sexual reproduction in plants and plants have evolved to attract insects and pollinators and attract the pollen to grow down through the female reproductive tissues. But while they have adapted all these mechanisms you'd think well why don't fungi and bacteria grow through this lovely luscious sexual Mm. tissue and it doesn't so it's just uh sexual tissues in plants produce a lot of natural antibiotics that prevent the growth of bacteria but they're really specialized to stop the growth of fungi
1: Mm. and fungi being like a particular class of, of growth?
6: Fungal pathogens uh, including things like yeasts and filamentous fungi but what's interesting about uh, fungal pathogens is that they're closely related to fungal pathogens of humans and there are very few safe treatments of fungal diseases in humans which are now starting to really grow and can
1: take life. So there's an obvious link there. We've got these plants doing amazing things and they're not having any problems at all. We've got, I assume, problems in our toes and other more delicate parts. Um, How do you take the the stuff that's working in the plant and bring it across to work with humans?
6: So they, the, the, pro, the molecules that we've been working with are proteins. So, of mm-hmm. course, they're gene-encoded, and that means that we can make large amounts of them in fermentation systems. And we've worked for quite a few years now, on, on their mechanism of action to make sure that they're entirely specific for fungal cells and won't have any effect at all on mammalian cells. There's all sorts of applications, the ones you mentioned, but also uh, uh, infections of the lungs by Aspergillus. Uh, it's a serious problem in people who are immun- immunocompromised, who uh, have cancer or HIV, uh, there's also candida infections, which can affect the uh, vulnerable parts, but also can move systemically through the body and cause massive infections mm. and death, especially mm. in hospitals.
1: Now, is this one of the areas where we find sort of uh, several natural remedies and so forth being used by certain cultures for many years? Is this is this where some of that that value is coming from in the use of some of these materials? That you know weren 't just make you know nonsense stuff, they actually did have these properties and were working is that is that why I, th-
6: I think that 's certainly true because the molecules that we work with are very common, all plants mm. produce them they 've been evolving over hundreds of millions of years, and a lot of tribal groups just make extracts and rub them on their skin but people there hasn 't been much work on uh, moving natural molecules antifungal molecules into the clinic Hmm.
1: now you you also work in the area of um, taking plants and essentially using them as factories to manufacture pharmaceuticals first of all are we talking about like large plants here are we talking about small sort of growth stuff that you can you know put on the top of a pond what 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 type of plants are producing these materials
6: well actually We'll probably be able to get all sorts of plants to produce these materials, but for that application, we're very specifically interested in a group of proteins called circular peptides. So Mm. uh, this is work that I do with my colleague, Professor um, David Crake at University of Queensland. Circular peptides are regarded as the new pharmaceuticals. They're slightly larger. They're larger than the small chemicals that we use as pharmaceuticals, and so they they're more directed towards a target they cover more of a surface area so they are more specific and that work actually also arose out of a tribal medicine that mm-hmm. was used in africa it was a, an extract from a plant called kalata kalata that's the african name and people used to boil it and deliver a tea to women who were in childbirth to accelerate childbirth now this created a great deal of interest because it's a protein but it's stable to boiling can be taken orally can be absorbed by the gut mm. circulate and so my colleague david Crake has been grafting other active sequences onto these circular peptides mm. so he's made a series of really interesting molecules very potent painkillers molecules that can be used to treat cancer obesity inflammation there's a wide spectrum of grafts that he's done and the work in our lab has been to see if we can make them in plants
1: hmm. it seems to be oh, oh Lauren, you're waving
6: yeah so yeah. is there is there, <laughs> uh, is there many
2: advantages in actually getting the plants to produce these peptides as opposed to synthesizing them ourselves in labs what, what why would we do that rather than make them ourselves
6: they're actually... You can synthesise them in labs, but the yields are very low and they're very difficult to make because they're circular. They have a mm. continuous backbone and they're also, surprisingly, tied in a true knot. So it's very hard to get a synthetic peptide to fold in that way and the plants do it very well and they make large amounts of it. Mm. Uh, the other thing is that uh, the idea eventually is that you may get these crops to grow in developing countries and they may use that to make pharmaceuticals that you don't need to transport you don't need to inject you don't need to store in the cold I
1: think um, that's one of the most exciting things about this work is the idea mm. that you know you're taking some of the power out of the big pharma companies and saying okay this is something that could just be mm. be sold as a seed or whatever and grown and used locally similar to the traditional tribal ways in which many of these medications originated Maryland it's very interesting stuff Where unfortunately out of time um thanks for, so much for chatting to us today i hope to see these circular peptides in uh, wider use in the future um good luck with the work and um hopefully we'll hear more about it thank you um professor marilyn anson is professor of biochemistry at the latrobe institute for molecular science out at latrobe university well we're uh, pretty much out of time folks uh, you've been listening to einstein and gago on Sri dr lauren good to see you again you're doing well
2: doing very well thank you dr shane
1: when are you going to do that live on Airbirth? birth <laughs>
2: Got a few more months to go, a few but more uh, to yeah, go. Yeah. yeah. We should we should do it. I can do it on Twitter. Maybe it might yeah. be a little bit less. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, your your husband might tweet. You, uh, you take his, He may. Uh, folks, if you haven't worked it out yet, uh, our uh, good Dr. Lauren is with child, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll be producing little Dr. Lauren in a
3: few months' time.
1: Indeed. Yeah.
3: Dr. Ray, Don't good to can't. see you. Yeah. You well? I, I, am. I am. I think we're far enough off that Dr. Lauren's still laughing about the line of birth. <laughs>
1: Yeah, look, we, you know, we do what we can. I mean, just, um, well,
2: I'm quite interested in this herb from Africa. I might have to,
4: you know, <laughs> oh, look <geez>. into this.
1: <laughs> <laughs> just keep away from the herbs, Dr. Yeah. Uh We're going to leave it there, folks. We're going to hand over to the team from Edith. They're over there in the studio waving frantically for us to get off the air. You've been listening to Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks once again for tuning in, and we will have more science for you next week. Have a great Sunday. <laughs>
0: This has been a podcast from 3 rr 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.